0: And welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Karen swallow Pryor and Heidi White. Karen, Heidi, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here.
1: Oh, thanks, David. It's good to be here. Yes. I can't wait.
0: So we are here to discuss Sense and Sensibility a little bit more. Uh, for those of you who have the three-volume edition, we are going to discuss the first seven chapters of Volume 2. So Volume 2 is Chapter 1 through 7. Uh, for the rest of you, I think it's Chapters 23 through 29 or something something around that, Uh, pick it up after the shocking ending to chapter 22. So um, we're going to discuss that in a second. Quickly, though, I need to talk about our friends over at Escondido Tutorial Services. Our culture needs more fine minds who have an understanding of the great ideas of Western Civ. The Dying Art of Civil Discourse is one that needs practice and finesse, and your junior high and high school students can hone this art through studying with 25-year teaching veteran, grade books tutor Fritz Henricks. I said it wrong last week, and I was corrected, so I'm trying to get it right. Henrichs, not Heinrichs. His five-year survey of the great books of the Western world includes the works by the likes of Homer and Plato and Calvin and Shakespeare and Dante and Chaucer and Dostoevsky and Kant and so many others. Each week, students meet for a two-hour session discussing the reading and learning to dialogue with one another. They're required to write papers several times a semester. And the opportunity for two free years of classical Greek is offered to students enrolled in Great Books 2 and 3, while free Shakespeare accompanies year 4. So you need some free courses when you sign up for the Great Books courses. Fifth-year students are going to write two 3,600-word papers and present them. Uh, in Escondido on, or online, answering questions from Mr. Hendricks and the assembled fellow students. Those who are interested can also join a four-day gathering each June full of debate, readers' theater, singing, dancing, and fantastic fellowship. Guided by the joyful Christian wisdom of Mr. Hendricks and the great books, join a conversation full of truth, justice, love, and beauty. To find out more how you can join this great conversation, please visit the Escondido Tutorial Service website today at gbt.org. And again, that's gbt.org. So thanks to Mr. Hendricks and Escondido for sponsoring Close Reads this month. They are longtime friends of ours. Okay, so at the beginning of this section that we're discussing, we got the sort of semi-cliffhanger at the end of Volume 1, and then we get the the sort of fallout. So at the beginning of Volume 2, we're having Eleanor's kind of counterpoint to... Marianne's, Marianne's response to when Willoughby left. So one of the things that I was thinking about is how much Jane Austen seems to be asking us to compare Marianne and Eleanor. They're, she's giving us very similar scenes uh, where or very similar situations anyway, where we then have to see that they're responding differently or in some cases they're responding the same. And so I was thinking about... Um, I was thinking about the way... She does that and whether we are supposed to, well, I'm going to work, I'm going to work backwards to to what I'm thinking about by asking this. Do you think as you're reading volume two here that Eleanor is a good judge of herself? Hmm. Do you think she knows herself very well? Is she Hmm. honest about who she is? What do you think of that, Karen?
2: that's a great question because in that um first paragraph of um chapter one of volume two or or whatever uh (laughs) chapter number it is 23 i guess it would be for some um there's the line where you know she's asking all these questions you know uh, rhetorical questions after learning about edward's engagement to lucy and Mm -hmm. um and and she's trying to ask herself was she you know did Edward really like her? Was she mistaken? And it says, um, his affection was all her own. She could not be deceived in that. And that line Mm -hmm. could not be deceived in that is so interesting because, um, it reminded me in rereading this, it reminded me of Elizabeth Bennett and her confidence in her perception and her judge character. And of course we still don't know yet if we haven't read the whole book, whether Eleanor um, was deceived or not um but she's very very sure of herself here and her judgment um about edward's character and yet you know she's not as sure Yeah, you know, she thinks we just had a parallel scene where willoughby has left marianne and she's not as sure about that and we we know marianne well i, I don't want to give too much away but it's interesting because we think that marianne's judgment is not as reliable. Um, mm. But you know we're in for a few surprises. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, it's interesting because at the end of the reading for this week, we get the scene where Marianne gets the letter from Willoughby, and she's mm-hmm. super upset. And Eleanor is reading the letters, and and they're having the conversation. And Marianne says, "I know he loved me," mm-hmm. and it, you know, it, she basically says exactly what Eleanor said right before the line that you read: "His affection was all her own." Ba- Marianne's basically saying her his his affection was all my own. I know it. I know it. I know it right i could not right. be deceived in that so right we, that's an example that's what i was talking about like we we keep getting these where they they're kind of running into the same situations over and over again and we're forced to look at the way they respond and and it seems like on the surface they're they're meant to have responded differently but then in the mm-hmm. end they kind of respond the same way i mean they have maybe different temperaments but their responses mm-hmm. are both his affection was all my own she she could not i could not be deceived on that i found that really fascinating and that's what that's why i asked i does eleanor I mean, are they both, it's obvious that Marianne, or it seems like it's obvious that Marianne is being deceived, but is Eleanor also not as self-aware as she thinks she is? Mm-hmm. Um, Heidi, what do you think?
1: It's a good question because I, I've always thought of, until this very minute, uh, exactly right now, with what you two are <laughs> saying, I have always <laughs> thought of Eleanor's assurance of, um edward's affections as a flaw in the book because um i think it it lessens the suspense and the pain of what lucy has told her um like well if mm. she's sure that edward loves her then that's it just doesn't seem as sad and hard on her um because so, so at least
0: there's they can she and edward can sort of share this 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 romeo and juliet type drama together
1: right i and especially considering the um the way that edward treated her at his last visit to at barton cottage when he is a little bit more aloof from her when he's not quite as affectionate towards her and and she wonders why and then it seems to me that with you know through knowledge of human nature, then she would question his affection. And then finding out he was engaged to somebody else, she would think, well, maybe he never really loved me. So Mm. I've always thought of this as a bit of a flaw. And uh, partly because of what I just said, just knowing human nature, it seems like she would question that. And then also because um, it seems that it kind of lessens her suffering internally uh mm-hmm. this that she's not questioning his affection like what you just said david That it just kind of makes it well there's these outside obstacles not just like does this man really love me and but with what you two are staying with the parallelism between marianne's response to willoughby and eleanor's response to edward then maybe it's not a flaw maybe i've been interpreting it wrongly or missing something every time i've read this novel because so, what you just said made a lot of sense. That both of them respond to the obstacles with. At least I know he loves me. So
2: what got me thinking I, about? I think, oh, oh, I, go, go I, I think
1: some of the, the some of the drama
2: um, in all of Austin is is for for the, us as readers. Like we talked mm. about last time, you mm. know, we have to. We can't. This isn't a story to get lost in. We have mm-hmm. to constantly be on our guard. And so, as readers you know Austin sets us up to trust Eleanor's judgment and not trust Marianne's right mm-hmm. and so but you know it, it it doesn't turn out as simple as that
0: hmm. right there's there's this line in chapter well volume 2 chapter 1 that got me thinking about this because it, it, at first glance it felt so ridiculous it's where she's she's thinking about um she says so well was she able to answer her own expectations that when she joined them at dinner, only two hours after she had first suffered, and this is the bit that I, uh, I was laughing at, suffered the extinction of all her dearest hopes, no one would have supposed from the apparent the appearance of the sisters that Eleanor was mourning in secret. And mm-hmm. that, that little phrase there, the extinction of all her dearest hopes, makes mm-hmm. that sentence, that bit of characterization, pretty complicated, I think, because on the one hand, it, it does seem that she is being more noble, more, you know, more calm than Marianne. You know, she's able to actually go down and have dinner and no one would know the difference. That's something that Marianne would never actually be able to do. But then Mm. Jane Austen drops this little line about it being the extinction of all her dearest hopes. And that's such hyperbole, (laughs) you know, Mm, that it, it makes it, it makes me question, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, we all like maybe get... Maybe
1: she is dramatizing a little bit. Right. And we,
0: but it's also a very human thing, right? Like, yes. when we're feeling things very deeply, we do kind of probably make the stakes bigger than they were or are, or we make things a bigger deal, or we feel that, you know, we, we would say it feels like it is the extinction of all our geostropes. So it's both human, but it's also a lot like something Marianne would say, just buried mm. in, in mm. Eleanor's different personality, if that mm. makes sense. And yeah, that's one of the things I love about Austin. Is in that one sentence, it feels like she she can say so much about what's going on in a character, and that's so. That's what got me thinking about how how she's more alike than her sister mm-hmm. than maybe it seems like on the surface, right? But I didn't ask a question, so you can just talk now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no i i think that's a i think that's exactly right and and we're yes uh, we're constantly being asked as readers to make judgments about the interior thoughts and decisions and perspectives of these characters and um and it's and it's never it's never simple and it's never black and white
0: so given that do you think so i mean she she kind of talks about how eleanor mourns in secret and marianne mourns out in the open is sort of the Sort of, little, I mean, I know it said that about Eleanor anyway. Mm-hmm. Is Austin making a judgment about one of those two approaches? Like, do you think that Austin is saying that Marianne is more right to respond the way that she is, or vice
1: versa? I think it's pretty clear, as we've been saying, that if Austin is making a judgment, it's on it's 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 towards Eleanor's way of managing, which is very um, British, too. Right. There's, there's a lot of, a there's the cultural expectation that, that this is what good breeding is. A woman doesn't show her feelings in public. And so that... Keep calm and carry on, right? That's right, <laughs> which is <Yeah>. everywhere <laughs> in England. Right. You walk right. in England, it's everywhere even to this day. Um, but, at, and there's also this sense of Eleanor is carrying um Marianne as well, because Mary is is not showing good breeding. She is she's she's rude to people. And so mm-hmm. Eleanor has to not only kind of uh hide and restrain her own emotional responses to this sad thing that's going on in her life, but also be somewhere she doesn't really want to be. She didn't even want to go to London. And she is covering up for Marianne all the time and taking care of all the people in the room. So it's an enormous amount of pressure she's handling with an enormous amount of grace, and I greatly admire her for it. So, and I, I think that Austin, yes, sets her up for that.
2: You know, and and i biograph- am not a big proponent of biographical criticism, but it can be helpful and interesting. And biographically, uh, we would associate Jane Austen with Marianne Mm. she was in real life the younger sister um from what we know about her Cassandra her older sister and their relationship um Jane would have been more like Marianne and Cassandra more like Eleanor Mm. and so I think even though we are clearly the novel is clearly making a judgment in favor more of Eleanor than Mary Ann, the reason why one reason why it's so complicated and so nuanced and so good is because because there are element because we can relate to both. And clearly Austin mm-hmm. herself can relate to both characters and can poke yeah. fun at both characters and satirize all of them. Um, and so it's you know it's it's just nuanced that way.
0: Mm. So that's interesting. I don't think <sighs> I didn't. I didn't know that she was. I mean, I knew she was younger. I didn't know that she was. She, she would have seen herself more in Marianne or or what or whatever. Um, in some ways, there is an energy to the writing in Marianne, which you can. It doesn't surprise me because it kind of feels like it's been lived. <laughs> some of the way mm-hmm. that she, some right. of the way that she acts and behaves. Um, I, I, I suppose. I'm, I assume she kind of takes it to an extreme a little bit. But do you? There's this there's this um you know Lucy kind of has says the same thing that Marianne and and Eleanor were saying like these women are all sure that the person was in love with them until they're not sure anymore <laughs> um Lucy's sure of it you know Eleanor thought she was sure of it and then she's not sure of it but she also doesn't really think that maybe that Lucy and Edward belong together and and then Marianne thinks that she could she'll make Edward happier and and you know <laughs> so they're all very well I'll ask it this way it is at the heart of what's going on here, do you think there is a, is there's a pride factor going on in each of these, these women that, that is kind of driving their responses?
1: Oh, I like that question a lot. I've been thinking a lot of this time about this, this way around about the lock of hair hmm. in the ring. And, um, which is to be honest, I've never, let me say this. I've, I've not ever read this novel with a, purely literary kind of reading like i've i've just read it for fun like just Mm -hmm. picked it up over the summer and read sense and sensibility or watched the movie or whatever i've never taken a class on it i've never studied it uh so this is the first time reading sense and sensibility for me that i'm looking at it from a very literary perspective and trying to kind of draw these threads together not just you know reading for fun and i
0: are you gonna make a make a Joke now about threads and hair and something uh, like threads that.
1: Threads and hair. I wasn't going to, but I feel like <laughs> I should, and I'm sorry I missed out on that opportunity. Um, Honestly, that, that was kind is... of low hanging fruit. <laughs> it was such low hanging fruit. Now that you say that, um, I well, now I can't think of a joke. Man, I'm so bad at jokes. I say this all the time when I speak. Like I'm just the worst at jokes, so people are trapped to <laughs> handle me. Not. Good I
0: I, knew, I. I distracted <laughs> you. Carry on.
1: <laughs> um. That. I'm, I'm wondering a lot about this lock of hair it seems complicated because it, it kind of breaks up the Eleanor is so full of sense and everything that she has all this sound judgment and she never sees anything from her through her feelings whatever but that lock of hair she was wrong about so I'm <laughs> curious what you all make from that.
2: I think that is such a deft touch on Austin's part. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it turns you know, the way it's presented at first when Eleanor is so sure, we, again, we don't question her judgment and it just makes sense. And, um, and yet she, she turns out to, to be wrong. And it's, it's wrong about such a sentimental, personal, um, mm hurtful ultimately hurtful thing um it's just beautifully done by austin i
1: think so too yes it has this subtlety to it and this humanness that it humanizes her in a book in which she does everything right Mm -hmm. and i i think that that's really lovely right and it
2: shows her to be romantic and um have sensibility as well right
1: Mm. it's
0: interesting that you say that in a book where she does everything right, because <clears throat> I don't know why, but I found myself being much more um, critical of Eleanor. And I, in this reading and this week, I, I don't, I have no idea why maybe I would just predisposed to be critical right now or something, but, <laughs> but, but I was thinking about how she often does the right thing, mm-hmm. but, you know, underneath, the doing are sometimes she unmasks herself in through the narration or through her thoughts, um, which is true of all of us, right? Well, we might, we would don't want to do the right thing, but and she even tells that's something she's constantly encouraging Marianne to do. You know, you have to go back out there. We have to stay here for a couple more days because of civility, because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I know you don't want to, we have to put on a brave face and do this. It's kind of seems like it's Eleanor's, you know, mantra. Sure. But, then she, but then at the same time, she's at times she unmasks herself, either. You know the, you know we begin to see where she's prideful or mm-hmm. where she is judgmental you know there's that there's that hilarious line where she says it says that she blushed for the insincerity of Edward's future wife uh-huh. um, which isn't that's that's a great great bit of writing but it it kind of in some ways it unmasks her own prejudices her own uh, the way she looks down on people and things like that so she does the right thing and is good to do the right thing, but she doesn't always do it for the right reasons or the right motives or she does it despite herself. And huh. I think that deepens that deepens her character. I mean, I think it makes her more human. It makes her it makes her um kind of you know, it keeps her from being just an archetype, I think, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Where we might just look at her as sort of some kind of you know, archetype. Like Elsie litera-
1: Dismore. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> yeah, oh, just like do whatever. That. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and so right, in- like-
2: Go ahead. go ahead. No, 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 go, go. When, when she, when she, you know, in chapter two of volume two, um, she, when she gets the first opportunity to bring this subject up again with Lucy, um, cl- clearly, you know, to get more information, to, um, to, to, to show herself as having the emotional upper hand um, after receiving this information. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily wrong, a wrong thing of her to do, but it's certainly right. She's not being a wallflower here. She's not just just giving
1: into this information and giving up. Um, And so I really like that about her character, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, Well, and Austin slips down. We talked about this a couple of times. She slips in and out of these narrative voices. Hmm. And sometimes you don't know. If it's an ironic voice, mm-hmm. if we're supposed to take what she's saying at face value, or if, or if it is as David you said earlier, a character not really knowing herself mm-hmm. as well as she thinks she does, and so I've I've been paying a lot of attention to that in this particular section, like this crucible section, right when they <laughs> when these young women are under the gut when they don't know how it's going to turn out, and the men they love uh, are slipping out of their grasp, then what how How did they respond to it, and, as you pointed out, do they know themselves? So in situations like that, like why did she talk to this is what I would if I was teaching this novel, why did she have that conversation with Lucy? Right? is are we getting the full story? Is this narrative voice ironic, or is this narrative voice? are we supposed to take it at face value? and I, I think that that's kind of what leads to um, some good discussions and interpretations of this novel. Hmm.
0: One of the things that I love is that you know, as we're talking here, I'm realizing I said I was being critical, and I think Austin's inviting us. You know, it's she's revealing more of this character's flaws, and Mm -hmm. she's inviting us to be critical. Which, and when I say it's critical, it doesn't mean I I didn't. I I I felt like I was being critical, but I didn't. It didn't make me like her less. You know, in some ways, it makes me like her more because, as I said, she's she's more. It makes her feel more human, and it in some ways, what it ends up doing is tying her. The things that were critical about critical of her about in some ways allows us to tie her with Marianne by the end of this section. Like they're tied Mm -hmm. together. They're experiencing the same things. They're kind of linked at the hip or arm and arm or something. And you mentioned a crucible. They're going to kind of have to move forward together. And so being that we, I think had we not, had we seen, um, had we seen Eleanor as just a sort of, pure, well, I don't, pure is not the right word. This this like standard, you know, to this kind of perfect standard archetypal character and archetypal, again, that's not the word. I'm, I don't know what the word is that I'm trying to think of right now, but she. it would have been hard to link her with Marianne and not see them and see them actually kind of as partners in what they're enduring and having to go forward together. Because we would have said, right. it would have. she would have been so much, she would have been so much better than Marianne. We would have, it would have been too difficult to see them as real partners, so to speak. Do you agree with that? Or, or am I overthinking it?
1: I do agree with that, David. And I, one of my big questions is, and has always been in this middle section, should Eleanor have told Marianne about her conversation with Lucy? And I understand why she couldn't in the sense of she had already told Lucy that she wouldn't say anything to anybody. Right. And so, yeah. you know, yeah. you got to keep that. You got to keep your word. I, I I really do get that. But in terms of you, what you just said, the relationship between the sisters, the uniting through suffering and moving forward, should she have just confided in Mary Ann and created that bond? And, um, and then I have just always wondered why she didn't. If it was really that about her word or if there's a part of her that just didn't want to say that's a good question.
2: I've I've never really thought about that. But I do think it it's consistent with her character. Mm-hmm. And and again, this is one of the more, I guess, black and white binaries of the novel. But you know, Marianne doesn't hide anything. She blurts everything out. And and Eleanor, you know, she keeps things to herself and in the and very literally in the, in this. Um, pain that she's carrying she does and i, I find that very consistent with her character it's, it's just like even too painful to speak mm-hmm.
1: of even mm-hmm. to her sister do
0: you, oh, do you do you think that she is um that she views herself as a better person as better than Marianne. There's that line yes. in three where she <laughs> says something like, she didn't think it proper that Marianne should be left the sole guidance of her own judgment. <laughs> yes. um, but then she also recognizes her own inability to uh, condescend, to anticipate enjoyment to for another line on the opposite page. She seems to, uh, you know, recognize her own limitations to some degree, but so you, so you, you would say, yes, she, she definitely looks down on her sister and she thinks she's a better, she's better than her.
1: I do. I think that, but I don't, again, as what you said earlier, David, I think is really important. That doesn't change my admiration and affection for this character. I really like Eleanor. I I think Eleanor is a remarkable literary character and I'd want to be her friend. Um, But yeah, I think she does have pride in her soul towards the excesses of sensibility in Marianne and in those around her.
2: Mm. And I mean, I think Austin is also here is in all of her works making a moral judgment. um, Mm -hmm. And it is a moral judgment against excessive sensibility. And so she does that primarily through the character of Eleanor.
0: Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting. That's interesting that you say that she, you know, she 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 makes the judgment. She allows us to make judgments through this character, and yet at the same time, she's not making Eleanor this perfect character who is the model makes judge model judgments herself. Mm-hmm. That that seems to complicate things in some ways, as far as as readers are making our own judgments about these characters because the primary character who is making judgments about some of these other characters is someone who we also have to judge and determine the wisdom of their own of that person's own judgments it becomes a little bit of a like (laughs) one of those russian nesting dolls thing where you (laughs) you can get kind (laughs) of lost in it or like a room with mirrors on every side right um but i guess that gets to the weight to the complexity of making judgments and wisdom and all those things that we deal with every day anyway Mm -hmm. so i I guess that's the brilliance of it
2: yeah it's what makes this a novel not a sermon
1: Yes. Yes. But Austin does seem to take Eleanor, I think, very seriously in this novel. She doesn't mock her or even in those little flashes that we get, you know, some of the passages that you read, David, and things that you referred to, Karen, there's, there's kind of a, a little bit of that light mockery of Marianne, um, but not really of Eleanor. She doesn't really... Mock her, so she takes her seriously throughout this novel. Do you do you agree with that? Do you think that's true? Yeah, I, I do, and I actually um
2: think yeah. And I want to make sure we get to in relationship to this question to the what I think is almost like the climactic point of the novel, um, which is when Marianne encounters Willoughby. Again. Uh-huh. Um, I think there, there's so much going on there that that is. Uh, huh surprising maybe and um and very very nuanced not to keep using that word especially in in austin's treatment of marianne
3: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. well okay let's look at that then that is in that's in uh four chapter four is that no five uh, or right?
2: six i th- Five or six. <laughs> one of those. All the showers.
0: things that I said was wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the
2: the ball room, right, right? Or is it? Uh, it is. Six.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, it's gotta be, it it's six.
1: Gotta be six. Yeah,
0: it, yeah. Uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, read a little bit of that then, and then we can discuss that, um, especially if it's as you say the the climactic moment in the novel. Um, and I want to keep an eye on that question of the uh, whether Jane Austen. Is ever mocks Eleanor. Because um, I actually kind of disagree with you a little bit, Heidi. Um, Good.
1: I like to be disagreed with.
0: I think it's more respectful than it is to Marianne, but I think it's right. pretty harsh sometimes. Um, let's, so in my volume... And so let's see. It's page 204 in mine, but I've got the um, Vintage Classics one for anybody has got that. Um, it would be... Let's start with the... Third. Let's start to start with the third paragraph, third full paragraph. I think where it says they had not remained in this manner long. Mm-hmm.
1: Got it. That's um, page one sixty seven in if you have Penguin Classics, which is what I have.
0: Okay, um, Karen, do you, you want to read a couple paragraphs sure. for us?
2: Okay. Um, so they had not remained in this manner long before Eleanor perceived Willoughby standing within a few yards of them in earnest conversation with a very fashionable-looking young woman. She soon caught his eye and he immediately bowed, but without attempting to speak to her or to approach Marianne, though he could not but see her, and then continued his discourse with the same lady. Eleanor turned involuntarily to Marianne to see whether it could be unobserved by her. At that moment, she first perceived him and her whole countenance glowing with sudden delight. She would have moved towards him instantly had not her sister caught hold of her. Good heavens, she exclaimed, he is there, he is there. Oh, why does he not look at me? Why can I, I speak to him? Pray, pray, be composed, cried Eleanor, and do not betray what you feel to everybody present. Perhaps he has not observed you yet. This, however, was more than she could believe herself, and to be composed at such a moment was not only beyond the reach of Marianne, it was beyond her wish. She sat in an agony of impatience which affected every Feature, I'll do one more paragraph. At last he turned round again and regarded them both. She started up and pronouncing his name in a tone of affection, held out her hand to him. He approached and addressing himself rather to Eleanor than Marianne, as if, a, as if wishing to avoid her eye and determined not to observe her attitude, inquired in a hurried manner after Mrs. Dashwood and asked how long they had been in town. Eleanor was robbed of all presence of mind by such an address and was unable to say a word. But the feelings of her sister were instantly expressed. Her face was crimsoned over, and she exclaimed in a voice of the greatest emotion, Good God, Willoughby, what is the meaning of this? Have you not received my letters? Will you not shake hands with me?
0: Mm. (laughs) I do like that next sentence, though. He could not then avoid it, but her touch seemed painful to him. Mm -hmm. Which is one of those lines in Austin that's kind of funny, but also <laughs> sad at the same time.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, so you you were talking about there's there's so much nuance here. Um, so I, can you can you say more about that? I, I was struck by some of the little the little actions that she has the characters making.
2: Yeah, yeah, and of course, I mean it's the whole. I didn't take the, the, this this all the way a few more paragraphs, but um,
3: yeah, I yeah. think.
2: You know, this is the scene it's the scene of Marianne's greatest pain and shame and embarrassment, um, mm. and Eleanor's um pain for her sister and her inability to do anything for her sister. Um, it's where Willoughby sort of caught red handed. Um it's where both of their extremes with Eleanor knowing she needs to do something in this situation, but she can't, she can't, you know, for a moment speak and Marianne blurts everything out. Um, it's, uh, it's, and it's, it's so painful to read here. I think we, we feel so much pain and compassion for Marianne that whatever other judgments we have made about her and are making of her now, I think we just ultimately feel her pain with her. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems to me like, in some ways, whatever mocking to use Heidi's word Jane Austen did of Marianne earlier, that's kind of stripped away in this moment. Mm-hmm. Like it'll, which maybe that allowed, maybe that's because had she been mocking, it wouldn't have, it would have been, it wouldn't have been, been able to have that. I don't know. We wouldn't have been very much on her side.
1: This is a truly tragic scene. It's really sad. And there's so as, as Karen, what you both said, there's so much going on here that reveals the character of all of these people, including this little paragraph right here about Willoughby. He could not then avoid it, but her touch seemed painful to him. And he held her hand only for a moment during all this time, he was evidently struggling for composure. Eleanor watched his countenance and saw its expression becoming more tranquil. And after a moment's pause, he spoke with calmness. And then he, he says something very dismissive and you know barely polite to these people with whom he has had the greatest of intimacy, which is clearly a dismissal of them from his life. Um, and I mean, this whole scene amounts to a public shame and breakup of Marianne. Here, um, and so there's, but it's Eleanor, as you pointed out, that Karen. There's so much going on. Eleanor is watching this whole thing. Mm-hmm. She's just it. Uh, it goes behind her eyes to watch the shame, the shaming of the public shaming of Marianne. And her sense can do nothing in, in this situation, yes. right? It can't. That's right. It can't fix it. It can't. <laughs> it's
2: powerless here,
0: right? The only thing it can do is beg Marianne to be composed.
1: Yeah. Right, right.
0: Of course it even says that Eleanor was robbed of all presence of mind. Uh-huh. She doesn't know what to do either.
1: Right. In the face of his cruelty, there's no there's nothing she can do to publicly kind of assuage that. But okay. and make everything safe and comfortable and how she, as she she kind of wants to get this back under the control of the social expectations here. Mhm
0: so you say you you called him cruel Mm -hmm. um which maybe that's true but at this point in the novel given what we know if we haven't read further say in some ways i mean you called it tragic and all that it couldn't you couldn't couldn't one say that the tragedy is maybe i mean how, how much of it is actually his fault is one of the big questions that that as we're deciphering the plot and all that you have to kind of figure it out right i mean if someone is acting that way and you don't think you're in actually in the kind of relationship with that person that uh, that they think you are then how are you going to act i mean he seems like a coward you know on the surface but then also if you if we have depending on what we know i suppose you could say that maybe he was put in the position where there's no
1: right way to act right well there's no you're you're right. And I think this is getting to the heart of some of the big kind of human questions of this novel, which is if you are judging everything by sense, mm-hmm. then you're right. Like he's inquired after their mother. He is, you know, practically engaged to this other lady. And so he can't just go around talking to these other women. Like there's, you, you he could by the kind of mores of sense. He could justify his actions, but to, through the eyes of somebody like Marianne who's pure sensibility Mm.
3: he has no excuse no
1: defense right right based on the emotional connection that he had with this young woman even though he never as from what we know we really just we still don't know their the extent of their relationship which has been a big troubling point to Eleanor so if we mm. knew more, I could tell her what to do. I could, I could help her figure out how she, what she should do. That's what Eleanor is thinking. If they're, I just need to know if they're engaged or not. Mm. And that's been such a big deal to her um, in trying to figure this out. But as I really love what you just said, Karen. In the face of this, what is what good is sense? What can sense take back control of this relationship?
2: and And then the sense you know a chapter or two later, when you know willoughby the infamous letter that he sends marianne um like which is just such gaslighting right yeah <laughs> um, it, it, it's again that that's that's where sense it how can you make sense out of out of his denial of anything having happened between them emotionally um it's it's just a it, it, in that sense it, it's such a modern comp you know mm. complicated dysfunctional emotional relationship that austin is portraying here that is yeah. um that is not outdated at all <laughs> right
0: <laughs> some things are i guess some some failures with Humans just kind of are eternal, I suppose. Right.
1: Right. The big change is that now Marianne's actions wouldn't necessarily violate any right. social norms, right? and so there mm. wouldn't be the same expectation for Marianne to hide her feelings. But that the naked raw emotion of this is universal. This is this is really, I I mean, I do stand by. This is a really sad scene um, because marianne loves this man who has communicated that he loves her back and then he just disappeared mm-hmm. and now he is publicly shaming her for that
0: do you think that marianne's um the way she just kind of behaves generally speaking um makes it it makes it easier for willoughby to just be like oh she's just hysterical she just kind of made it all up right like I don't know what you're talking about. He's able to write that letter to her that he writes because she acts the way that she does, or, or in, in other words, it enables him to just kind of be a jerk, <laughs> like without, yeah. It's sort of, I don't know exactly what I'm saying. I'm
3: well, not. We, excusing we find Willoughby. out I'm later.
2: To... We find out later without giving you know that the letter there's a more of a story behind the letter too. Um, right, right. So yeah. I, I think you know I, I think to, you know it, it does go back to Eleanor's proper judgment that marianne put herself at risk in so many ways by um not just getting emotionally attached to willoughby but doing all the things that only engaged couples um were able to or even engaged couples wouldn't go off unchaperoned um, but, yeah. um yeah marianne has put herself at
1: so much risk um mm-hmm. and yeah to yeah. david's point i think that there is some sense that um because Marianne is generally known to be an emotional young woman of great sensibility, then it is easier to dismiss her um, because of that. The, and um but the the social expectations of the time would have frowned upon that um and kind of wanted to put her kind of train her how to show and display better breeding
0: yeah her her um her attitudes her the way she she goes about her life the way she's you know so she has an open book in some ways it it forces us as readers you know because we know that about her it forces us to make a decision about how much we're going to be on her side at this point. Right. How how trustworthy is she despite the way that she acts? So it puts us Mm -hmm. in as readers in kind of an interesting position. The reason I ask, I bring that up, that I even brought that up and, and why I even mentioned maybe we shouldn't be too harsh on Willoughby I don't want to defend him, but because it's because of what Eleanor says at the end of seven, after she reads the letters, there's mm-hmm. that bit where it says, she describes it as a letter of which every line was an insult. And then she said that she says this and which proclaimed its writer to be deep in hardened villainy. I mean, that's, it's like, uh, Beatrice and Marcia do by nothing talking about Claudio, um, uh. when she says to Benedict, you know, kill him. <laughs> um, right. You know, it's, it, it's got that feel to it. it. Maybe not so extreme, but also played by Emma Thompson now that I think about it. Um, uh-huh. yeah. But she's making a very bold statement there. She's describing this guy as a villain. And so I w- I'm wondering if, are, are, we supposed to, are we supposed to take that as fact or are we supposed to, um, are we supposed to take, you know, how, how are we supposed to read that description of him? I mean, because it's going to, it's naturally going to color the way we think about this guy the rest of the book you can't just drop something like that in there from your protagonist and it not impact the way we think about him.
1: Right. Yes, and I think that's kind of what I was getting at when I said there's not the same kind of gentle mockery and uh overt ironic voice when speaking through Eleanor. Mm-hmm. She is when I read that paragraph I think to myself even if I don't know Austin, like the full kind of scope of the, of the social norms of the day, I'm going to read that and say, there's something in this letter that, that makes him a hardened villain. Mm. So yeah, I do take that as this is how we are, we are supposed to feel about Willoughby right now based on everything that has happened.
0: Do you think we would have had she not included that line? Karen you can jump in here um,
2: too if you want. Yeah, I mean I I think that um especially in the earlier novels like this one Austen was drawing heavily on character types which had uh-huh. villains and rakes and you know damsels in distress and um and yeah. so yeah so I I I think she there's a currency um in the literary genre that of her day that that was more resonant than it is is today but um yeah, I think Willoughby is a type
0: of a villain. <clears throat> I was thinking that's just how, in some ways, how harsh that word that word is. It's not, you know, he's he made a bad choice or he's even, it's even worse to say that he's a villain than it is to say that he's a manipulative jerk. You know?
1: And I, uh-huh. I was thinking about how, yeah. in
0: some, when I was reading the beginning of the book, it, I, I was thinking about how there's kind of this fairy tale sort of vibe to it with the, the, there's, the dad's gone, you know, the 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 concept of these two children who are orphans to some degree uh, it seems like she's playing off that a little bit and the, but then so i've kind of been you, you can if you read if you think about it from that perspective you're kind of always waiting for the shoe to drop for the for the big bad wolf or the what's the witch in the hansel and gretel you know something like that to show up right. and this is the first time we get you know some this, the concept of of a villain preying on their these these children, for lack of a better... I mean, if I'm going to take that you know, analogy f- further. Um, but that, but that is, it is a very harsh way of putting it, and it really draws the lines in the book mm-hmm. in a way that's... Um, in some ways, it tells us how to read the book, I feel like. It's like we're at the point okay. now where we're saying right. the lines have been drawn. You know what side to choose. The rest of the book goes from here. This is not the same mm-hmm. book anymore.
2: Right. I think the, yep, that's the way that Austin ends up complicating what at this time were you know, character types is that she brings uh, to bear the sort of social circumstances and questions of her day. So,
3: mm.
2: you know, we find out in many cases, without giving much away here, you know, we find out that uh, someone who is a villain or someone who is a desperate young woman is partly made so because of of the the rigid rules of the society concerning marriage and money and so forth. And so so there there's an element where Austin's criticism, her social criticism, complicates the character the characters she portrays. Mm. Right. So Willoughby, right. you know Willoughby is a villain, but as the story goes on, you know, we come to understand some of the the social circumstances that
1: Exacerbate, you know, his own situation. Yeah. Right. There continue to be reversals in this novel, but this is the first, well, I would say the second major revelation in this novel. The first is that Edward is engaged to Lucy Mm -hmm. Steele. And then we have Willoughby as a villain, right? And so there's, and so much suspense has gone. This is the middle of the novel. So much suspense has happened after this. Do these men really love them? Are they going to get together? Is this going to be just an easy kind of love story? No, there's these obstacles in the way. Ah, Edward is engaged to somebody else and she's not worthy of him. Ah, Willoughby is a hardened villain. Like, so what's what's going to happen uh, next? There's, uh, as you point out, David, I really like what you said about fairy tales, that there there is kind of an, this kind of primordial archetypal feel to some of these revelations in this novel, which I like. I like that it's uh, within the comedy of manners there's still these kind of dark depths of human experience that are being plumbed and exposed and brought to the surface. Okay,
0: so you bring up Edward. I'm glad you did. Because mm-hmm. if, if Willoughby's a villain, why is Edward not a villain?
1: Well, that's explored within the novel, right? That, that she, Eleanor... You're you know, telling is she, us it's in again, the text? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> again, she is, is, are we supposed to take um, Eleanor's kind of musings at face value? Does she mm-hmm. have sober judgment here? Does she know herself? Because she lets him off the hook pretty easily. She says, Edwards. well, I know he loves, yes, I know he loves me. And then she kind of, and, and oh, he shouldn't have led me on. And then mm-hmm. she just kind of trails off at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she kind of, she, she she's
2: forgiving uh, toward edward in a way that she's not toward willoughby right well but what right.
0: Inter- what's interesting about that though is look at the end of chapter seven because then marianne lets willoughby off the hook too she, when uh-huh, she says she, she says it says for a moment or two she could say no more but when this emotion had passed away she added in a firmer tone eleanor have been cruelly used but not by willoughby uh-huh. dearest marianne who but himself by whom can he have been instigated by all the world rather than by his own heart um That's right, and so Marianne doing the same thing that Eleanor. The the biggest difference is that Marianne, you know, the way she the she built it up so much by her by her actions publicly and privately, by the way she responded, by by the way she kind of like waited around for Willoughby and all that, and she acted in such a way that was different than Eleanor. And it and then in some ways that almost built that builds up the sort of specter of Willoughby, which makes him seem more of a villain. I'm not saying he's not a villain. But in some ways, might it be that the way she responds makes him come across as more of a villain than Edward does? When it seems like, in, to some degree, they they both led these women on to some
3: Absolutely. degree, anyway.
1: Yes. Well, and that, that's why, again, sense and sensibility. We see all these contrasts. You started out this conversation today with just the right question, David. Uh, let's compare them. It is you know it looks so much as though. Eleanor's doing and saying all the right things, and Marianne is just kind of like over there feeling all these big feelings. But they do respond to similar situations in similar ways. And that is worth exploring. And I, I think that that's what is, as Karen pointed out earlier, just so brilliant about this novel. All these different threads are weaving in and out, and we think we're following one, but it kind of comes back and reverses and makes a different picture than we expected. And, and that's certainly true with the way that they respond to the obstacles. And that's very feminine, right? Well, he just did it because he loved me. (laughs) We make excuses, those kinds of things, as long as he loves me. And that both of these women respond like that.
0: Hmm. Karen, so help me out here with this Edward Willoughby thing though. So is is Edward less villainous based on the terms, the definition of villain that we're using here? Is he less villainous than Willoughby is? Or is it a matter of, I don't know perspective and point of view that that shapes that
2: well do you mean um from the perspective of the characters at this point in the story or from our? <laughs> perspective? I'm
0: thinking I'm thinking more like from our perspective like I think we're it's pretty clear that they don't view she that Eleanor right. is more uh, sympathetic to Edward's circumstances than to Willoughby's but but in reality like right. looking at it from our point of view did Edward do anything that much less worse than what Willoughby did
1: well,
2: because Edward Edward's engagement took place um when he was young, you know, younger and under mm. the you know sort of authority of his or the you know the in the home of his tutor. So this is another more mm. minor theme that we find in Austin, but um is the role that education has in mm. um in cult civilizing young men really, because they were the ones who had formal education. Um, I mean, this actually comes up in more explicitly in pride and prejudice. When when we learn, when Darcy tells the story of Wickham, you know, that Wickham was kind of a spoiled. um, Mm. And so there's a lot of commentary about education, the role education has in cultivating virtue in young yeah. men. Um, yeah. and that's not prominent here, but I think there's just, that's sort of the backdrop yeah. is that, um, is that Edward entered into an ill-advised engagement when he was a young man under the tutelage of, you know, uh, an adult who perhaps should have been adults who should have been more Adult, <laughs> more adult, right? Watching over the, sh- the children. Yeah.
0: That.
3: Yeah. So,
2: so I think Edwards is is a little bit more off the hook. Well, a lot more off the hook than Willoughby Yeah,
0: is. yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Although, on the one hand, it, it's uh, on the other hand, it seems like, um, you know, maybe Marianne is the one who needed. Uh, she needed the adult in the an adult in the room. Maybe like right, Edward right. had when he was younger, because she's what seventeen, right? Right. <clears throat> Of course, lost in this whole thing is Colonel Poor Colonel Brandon going in and out of the room with no response.
1: (laughs) Yep, (laughs) yep.
0: (laughs) The reversals are so interesting too because we keep having people going in and out of rooms, and and I I'm fascinated by the way authors um, portray action in specific rooms and the way people going in and out. Like that's why I love Woodhouse because in the same short story he'll have. He'll have Jeeves slip in and out of a room and he'll use 22 different words. Okay, we are back. We had um, a little bit of technical difficulty. So we had to call Karen on her phone. So if she sounds different, it's because she's on the phone instead of over the internet, which is not trustworthy. Um, the the internet is uh, the John Willoughby of the show. For lots
1: of reasons. Yeah, yes. exactly.
0: <laughs> um, before... before um, Earlier, Heidi, you mentioned something about reversals, and I was, I was thinking about how Jane Austen uses the way the characters move in spaces, um, and uh. she'll she'll draw comparisons between them. I'm fascinated by the way authors do that in books. So, if, for example, you read P.G. Woodhouse, Jeeves will come in and out of the room, and in the same short story, he'll use like 25 different ways to describe the Jeeves walks in and out of a room. Um, you know. Everything from Uh like he'll float in and out to he slips in and out to to crazy things that only Shakespeare and P.G. Woodhouse would say. But then there's this, (laughs) there's the scene earlier in this section where um, Eleanor's talking to Lucy. Um, I think it's Lucy and they're talking about Edward and Marianne's Mm -hmm. playing the piano and Eleanor is sitting very still. Um, and then there's another scene where Eleanor's sitting and Marianne's pacing all over the place because she's waiting for, Ed, for uh, John Willoughby to show up, right? And Eleanor's sitting and it talks about how Marianne can't, can't sit still and eventually um, she kind of forces her to, um, I think, lie down or something like that. But then at the very end of chapter seven, we get this thing where it says they were both silent and Eleanor was employed in walking thoughtfully from the fire to the window, from the window to the fire, without knowing that she received warmth from one or discerning, discerning objects from the other. And Marianne seated at the foot of the bed with her head leaning against one of its posts, again, took up Willoughby's letter. And after shuddering over every sentence, exclaimed, it's too much. Oh, Willoughby, could this be yours? And then she kind of has this little, you know, mini soliloquy thing going on here. But I was struck by the way that there's that... There is that reversal in the way that they're interacting. Like they'll have these deep conversations. And so I was wondering what you think it might represent the sitting versus the pacing. Is there something, is, is Jane Austen doing something purposeful there, or is that just me? Is she just, you know, people pace when they think? And so it's meant to be that person is more deep in thought or something like that. So I was wondering if you guys could help me unpack that. Well, you ladies, actually. <laughs> Karen, <laughs> yeah. what do you think about that? Well, sorry, Heidi, go ahead.
1: No, I just think you're onto something. I, I hadn't noticed that specifically, but I think just hearing you say that, it makes a lot of sense that uh, Marianne has this restless energy, this, uh, this movement, this constant movement, whereas Eleanor with her emotional restraint has a, a stillness and she's always kind of holding herself back from engaging in the environment, whereas Marianne kind of dominates it with her restlessness. I think that's really good.
0: So then Eleanor, what do we to make from Ellen? the fact that in this scene at the end of chapter seven here, Eleanor is the one moving what do you Karen what do you how do you think of that? And is this something that's common in Jane Austen?
2: Well, actually this uh, I referenced this book, I think last time, Jane on the Brain by Wendy Jones. It is so fascinating I mm-hmm. don't recall that she um, references this scene specifically, but um you know this is a cognitive psychotherapist who talks about how Jane Austen gets. So right, um, the mind body connection, and um, mm. how you know, we, how Austin portrays body movements that really um, convey the kind of emotional and cognitive things that really go on that are confirmed now by science um, and so this mm. would be a great example uh, to show how Austin really understood human psychology and emotion and affect affect and um portrays it so powerfully just with in in with a few minor details.
0: Mm. That's a, so Jane Jane on the brain, right?
2: Yeah, Jane on the brain, the subtitle is exploring the science of social intelligence with Jane Austen. Um it's a pretty brilliant book that uh you know that <laughs> marries together um cognitive psychology and jane austen's works <laughs> so
0: i'll try to remember to post that post a photo of that on instagram or something so people can yeah uh, just yeah. as a reminder for people
1: i was weird question david about why is it eleanor who's pacing around here and i'm i've i've never thought about this so i'm thinking out loud here um i wonder if uh Eleanor is going through here. I, I think this is true. She she is not a flat character. She she experiences a trajectory and arc of growth in this book. But because she's so restrained uh, and she doesn't show her feelings, that arc of growth is... It's Readers have to kind of find it. You have to care enough to look for it. And um, I, I think maybe that's some of what's happening here. She mm. is... Um, she's... She's moving around because her soul is growing here. She's encountering something that she can't control. And, um, and, and, and her kind of judgment of her sister is meeting her great love for Marianne and now a new knowledge of this hardened villain in the world and what's that going to mean. And she has to rise to the challenge of meeting that. Um, and I, I think that some of this movement may be an objective correlative to that process mm. for her.
0: You know what? I just, I'm looking over this scene again. Um, I can't later in the scene, Eleanor says, you have to lie down again. And for a moment, you know, Marianne does, and then she gets back up again and eventually they have to give it to the lavender. The first literary example of mm-hmm. um, <laughs> essential, essential oils. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, wow. But it, it strikes me... I'm, actually, it's probably not. It's probably in the Iliad or something. <laughs> um, but there's no... I can't find where it says that she actually got up again. Like It doesn't tell us that Marianne got up and walked around because it says she's seated at the foot of the bed with her head leaning against one of its posts. That's a very specific description, right? Mm-hmm. She, takes, she takes up the letter and then she starts talking. But I can't see any... I don't find any description... I mean, I'm trying to look at it while we're doing this, but where it says that she got up again,
1: so another reversal.
0: Well, it seems yeah, there's some kind of imp, you know, somewhere along the way, she's back up again, and then Eleanor is the one encouraging her to sit down. So in this one page, in this one scene, it seems like they almost switch places a couple times. That's really interesting. Without without us necessarily even having, or or Jane Austen just doesn't know what she's doing and she forgot to tell us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's never the answer. (laughs) Uh, No, I think that's really good because that's the thing that they have to learn from each other, right? Eleanor needs, and that's why I asked the question earlier, should Eleanor have confided in Marianne? And I don't know the answer. I'm not necessarily casting judgment on the answer to that question, but Eleanor should engage with, let people speak into her life and comfort her and help her Um, it is not good for a person to be alone, right? And so that's, but Marianne really does need to learn restraint. She needs to learn sense um, for the sake of her reputation, for the sake of her health, for all, you know, all these things that kind of the second half of the novel explores. Mm -hmm. And, and so this might be, as you're pointing out, an intentional, Um, kind of reversal of body posture to reflect what's coming in this novel or to foreshadow what's coming.
0: It it even says that um, Marianne, Eleanor says, lie down again, and and Marianne does for a second, but she keeps shifting from one posture to another. And Mm. that kind of mirrors the way they're kind of swapping postures in some ways.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah. But she ends the she ends the chapter quiet and motionless. Those are the last words of the chapter.
0: Yeah, on the bed, quiet and motionless. Yeah, that's it's the essential oils, man.
1: Mm-hmm. That you know what? That's right, lavender. Everybody, works. call your consultant. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's <in> Jane Austen.
0: <laughs> um. That's really interesting because the, the, she, she creates this action without telling it. She goes into this very specific description, but then the action itself is implied through the language, through the dialogue, almost mm-hmm. through the emotions the character is expressing. It, that seems to do that well, seems difficult. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. or maybe she didn't know what she was doing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Have you no, encountered
0: I think the, that? Karen, have you encountered that in in all your studies? Of is that something she does often?
2: What the, the physical motion?
0: Um. Well, the way she went from you know Marianne sitting down and then next thing you know she's standing up, and the only reason we know she's standing up is because Eleanor says lie down again. But then it was kind of it makes sense that she's standing up again because of the rant, the sort of. I don't I don't want to use that I use that word loosely. The the sort of emotion that she's expressing, but it doesn't tell us that she stood up. Is that kind of the way she moves people just through their dialogue and then revealing it later. Is that common in, in Austin?
2: Um, I mean, I, it's not something I've really noticed much. Um, I mean, I took it that she was sitting up before, like on the end of the edge of the bed and then and then Eleanor told her to lie down.
0: So just lie down. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right, yeah. That makes sense. Right. That's
2: probably. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you're saying I'm reading too much into it. Fair enough.
2: I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, she was, you know, leaning with the po- her head against the post. sitting. So, yeah, yeah.
0: So um but, It is know, interesting though that Eleanor's go ahead, sorry, sorry, lag. So, yeah,
2: I was just going to say, you know, you, they're, they're always, these things always happen. You're watching television or a movie, and the character comes in and they, they don't close the door or something, and then it's, it's closed. So, I'm sure there are some like yeah, yeah. in here somewhere.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it is, it is an, such an Eleanor thing to be standing and then to, to tell Marianne to lie down and not <laughs> to rest. <laughs> like, don't worry, I'll, I'll watch. I'll hold down the fort. You rest, I'll watch out. Right. Well, we've been, um, despite technical difficulties, been going for uh, over an hour now. So uh, Heidi, what are your final thoughts on this as we move into the next section? And then I'll ask uh, Karen.
1: Right. So I, um, I sent you a message on Slack this week, David, saying, hey, I think it would be interesting to talk about education and sense and sensibility. Um, so and did I ignore I, it? Yes, but that was fine because <laughs> I am a secure person who can bring things up myself. So I just wanted to point that out in relation to what Karen said earlier about the sentence ed- you just said education. is loaded. Yes, <laughs> um, I've, that Karen said that earlier about education and the connection that that I loved how you said this—the connection that Austin draws between education and virtue—and uh, within that society, that one of the reasons that Lucy Steele, there's there's Lucy Steele is so um uh flawed as a person, as a character, that she's unworthy of Edward is because she has been improperly educated. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have anything interesting to think about, to talk about, uh, to contemplate that will lead her to become better mm. as a human being. Mm. And um, so I've been thinking a lot about that this week. Um, that in, in a culture that was characterized by leisure, by time spent, um, you know, drawing and playing the pianoforte and taking walks and having polite conversation with rigid boundaries around it in certain situations, but not in others and that kind of thing that, um, how important an education. I've just been thinking a lot about the role of education in that kind of culture. Um, and I mean, in every culture, education is everything. That's why we all do what we do. Um, but I've been thinking about it specifically in relation to and in this novel. And so I'm going to be paying attention to that, especially as these reversals come with the characters.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up, Karen, too, about, about Willoughby and Edward, the difference between them, how, how much education plays into that, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah you know, that that's
2: one thing it it's a, it's can be hard to catch um although Austin's language is not that archaic but um something to pay attention to in the dialogue is is the improper speaking and grammar of characters like lucy um which is a reflection of their lack of education and and again some of it. It's it's just hard. It's not exactly 21st century English, so it can be hard to catch. But if you if you read something that sounds like, oh, that doesn't sound grammatically correct, or that sounds awkward or rude, um, then you know <laughs> if it's a character that's supposed to possibly be that way, like Lucy, then it then it likely is. Um, and so, I would just encourage people to. Again, pay attention to the dialogue because most of the action is in the dialogue and in the narrative voice. Um, somebody on Twitter complained to me today about Sensibility not having much of a plot, um, and you know there are a few hmm. dramatic moments, but most of the action is yeah. in you know is in the characterization and the dialogue. So
0: yeah, I mean, I suppose look. it's not it's not there's not plot like it's it's not the Hound of the Baskervilles or something, but <laughs> right. Right. Jane Austen meets Sherlock Holmes would have been fascinating
1: or zombies
0: <laughs> yeah well yeah I
3: guess
1: I guess, I guess good point <laughs> I like have you, those books actually yeah you, I think they're fun have you read them Karen
2: I, I have not I just I haven't had time but I think the idea is funny and intriguing so I, I yeah one of these days I will <laughs> you
1: know what's really funny about it is that just like in the Jane Austen canon, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is the best one. <laughs> Better than Sensibility and Sea Monsters. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, if only I would had that idea, right? It's just <laughs> I, I know it's kind of brilliant. I love it. it.
0: Yeah, who? Somebody got very rich off that. Yeah, such a brilliant simple, I- such a simple it. idea too. Yep, <laughs> it's always the simple things, right? Like inventing the internet, which didn't work for us today. Um, I
1: know, right?
0: (laughs) Well, Karen, thank you for enduring and putting up with the issues and and being (laughs) being persistent. Uh, And of course, thanks for for reading and chatting and being here. Um, It's been really fun uh, getting halfway through this book with both of you. Uh, Next week, we will go into the next section of uh, volume two, the next...
1: I was so excited about reading the second half when things start to come together. And I've, I just think that's going to be really fun to discuss, you guys. So I'm looking forward to it. I, I,
0: I always want to say the next part of volume, but then every time I use the word part, it's really not accurate because, you know, I'll, that word actually means things in other, in other books. <laughs> I don't want to confuse people. But we are going to be reading Volume 2, Chapters 8 through 14 uh, for, for next week's episode. Um, Karen. Is there anything going on that you're up to? That any anything, any classes you're teaching? Anything like that that you want to give a shout out to before you go? I meant to ask you that last week. Anything that I guess if people can go buy your book, anything else?
2: Uh, yeah, they could definitely go buy the book. Um, well, of course, I'm coming to Cersei Institute in July. Is that right? Is that yeah, when it yeah. is? About a month yeah. now. Or yeah, conference or whatever, whatever. Um, I don't know my own schedule. Um and yeah I'm just I'm just mainly writing this summer. Um mm. so go buy the book that's out there so I can just keep working on the new one.
0: Should <laughs> <laughs> you should we encourage people to follow you on Twitter or would you rather us not?
2: <laughs> oh yeah no tw- Twitter's Twitter's a free for all. Find you can fi- you can find me on Twitter arguing with people about things like Jane Austen and um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> another thing there are various I'm social things that. yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dangerous right um well yeah. go, so go find karen on instagram and twitter and all that um she's actually a, a great follow um and of mm-hmm. course to thank you to escondido if you want to find out more about fritz Henrik's courses you can do that over at gbt.org and i want to say again thank you to them for for sponsoring uh and i want to uh, shout out uh, our editor, Logan, who spends many hours making us uh, sound better. So thanks to Logan. And if you're friends with him on Facebook or you want to say something on the, the, the Close Reads Facebook group, uh, he deserves it. So every now and then we got to give him a shout out. So, well, Karen, Heidi, thank you once again.
1: Thank you. Thanks, David.
0: For all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. We'll talk to you next week. And in the meantime, happy reading.